Welcome to A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. We share good news and godly wisdom to empower you to be salt and light in every season of life. Through the examples of the early churches, we can learn how to effectively reach the world with the gospel. Join Doug and Dr. Wayne Hilsden as they discuss the differences between the early church in Jerusalem and the Antioch church and what those models mean for us now. After this episode, check out our show notes on your favorite streaming platform and visit awardinseasonpodcast.org to download a free 30-day devotional that will encourage you to draw closer to the Lord. If you've gleaned anything from this podcast, consider paying it forward with a gift at somebodycares.org. Now let's join our host, Doug Stringer. It's great to have Dr. Wayne Hillsden with us today. Wayne is a speaker at Christian conferences around the world, focusing on Israel and God's heart for the Jewish people. Wayne and, and Anne and their four sons continue to serve in Jerusalem today. Wayne, thank you so much for being with us. Hello, Doug. It's a privilege. I'm not sure how many years we've been acquainted. You know, I visited your church on a number of occasions when I've been in Israel. What an incredible ministry you guys have there. Tell us a little bit about your journey. What took you from Canada to going to Israel and ended up starting and explain what firm is and also how you started King of Kings. Well, my wife and I uh, were pastoring in Toronto, Canada, and uh, we we're very excited to be close to the University of Toronto where I studied and did my seminary training and developed a young adults ministry at a local church there. Uh, and while we were there, very satisfied and happy to be in Toronto, thought we could live and serve there the rest of our lives, we get a sudden invitation from a pastor who had just come back from Israel, feeling called to go there, and he was going to set up a, a kibbutz volunteer program. In his conversations with government officials in Israel, talked about the possibility of starting a congregation of evangelical believers in the land, and they actually said, hey, we can get your clergy visa. Uh, welcome. Come. And he shared that story with us while we were having dinner with him out of the blue. He said, would you and Ann come and help us plant that congregation? And so we did. We joined them. It was Jim and Kathy Cantillon. We began as a little Bible study in downtown Jerusalem in a small apartment, pretty humble beginnings. And probably within a couple of years, we still only had about 50 people. But then we had a tremendous growth spurt and developed what is now called King of Kings Community. And that's become a mother to many daughter congregations as well. We now have about 15 congregations in our network. We believe the Lord called us to do three things in Israel. Number one was to plant congregations. Number two was to train people for ministry. Thirdly, to be a catalyst for unity among the various members of the body of believers, but also ministries and the leaders of those ministries. And that brings me to FIRM. You asked me what that is. FIRM stands for Fellowship of Israel-Related Ministries. We now have over 60 local Israel-based ministries that are part of the association. And that goal has been to be a catalyst for unity, but to move beyond just getting along with each other, but collaborating and working together for the kingdom as one. So we're excited about that. And so we vet those ministries. They apply and we look at their finances. We look at their track record, their theology, their integrity, their governance, and all of those things. And then we're able to tell their story all over the world. We have a very young team, probably in the average average age would be late 20s, and they know how to do social, and they know how to really produce great video content. And so millions of people now are getting the message through that arm of our ministry called FIRM. So that's, in a nutshell, uh, what we were doing. What I didn't mention, I said that we I believe that we're called to train people for ministry. And so we established what was called King of Kings College in 1990. 
It is now called uh, One for Israel College. It had another name before that. It's called Israel College of the Bible, but uh, an amazing ministry. And they co-grant their doctoral degrees with Dallas Theological Seminary and, of course, undergraduate programs as well. But uh, it's been exciting to see that develop over the years. We turned over that ministry to local Israelis, and they've done a phenomenal job, way more than we could have done ourselves. One of the things I've really enjoyed when I visited King of Kings is that you also have an amazing prayer tower. People are praying. You go up on the top floor and able to look over Jerusalem and pray. Obviously, that's one of your core values is this place of prayer and presence. And that's reflective in your worship. It's reflective in the way that you've created an atmosphere for people to enter into the presence of the Lord. What gave the precipice for wanting to do a prayer tower? Prayer has always been at the core of what we do. In fact, we know we couldn't have done anything without uh, the Lord's presence and his power. And we see that happening through prayer and worship. We bought the largest movie theater in Jerusalem in a shopping center right on Jaffa Street downtown back in 2003, opened it in 2004. A 600-seat auditorium is a phenomenal place that the Lord gave us, and we totally gutted it, renovated it. And at the end of that project, I was a little tired, to be honest. We needed to raise a lot of money, and it was a lot of work. And I was just so thankful we're in, and we've got this amazing place. And I went away on a personal retreat and asked the Lord, well, what's next? And I thought it came out of the blue where the Lord said, establish a prayer house. I remember that there was an empty floor in the building where the theater is on the 17th floor above Jaffa Street, and it had been an insurance office. About 6,000 square feet was quite large, the whole top floor of this commercial building. I went in there and finished my retreat in this dusty space, and there was mud on the windows. You couldn't even see out, but I lifted one of the windows and gazed out and saw the Temple Mount. I saw the Mount of Olives. had this incredible vista of Jerusalem. And I felt the Lord say, this is it. This is the prayer house. And uh, so we bought it, gutted it, transformed it, created these remarkable, looks like the ramparts, you know, the walls of Jerusalem. And and we look out the windows, almost the 360 view of the city of Jerusalem. It's really quite remarkable. So we pray with our eyes open. Just believe that that's a dedicated space sanctified for worship and prayer. My wife's been leading that ministry uh, up until a few weeks ago, and she turned it over to a young lady in her late 20s. And so we're excited about the future of that. So we invite people to come and pray throughout the day, and some come in the night. It's not 24-7, but we see prayer going on all the time in, in that place, locals as well as visitors from all over the world. For those that know you, they see the great successes of what God has been doing in and through your lives and the relationship equities that God has given you. A lot of times people don't see the story behind the story, the journey to where you get to where you are. What is part of your personal journey into the revelation of the work of the cross and the power of the resurrection? Secondly, what kind of challenges has the Lord have to help you to overcome some of your unexpected detours as you've led and journeyed and guided the stewardship that God's given you? Well, there are a number of challenges we've faced over the years, which could have caused us to pack up and go back to Canada. Uh, We haven't done that. We've stayed. But one of the challenges has been some dangerous situations in Jerusalem. We've gone through what are called intifadas, uprisings against the nation of Israel, violent 
The second one, most violent, started in the year 2000. And they were blowing up buses, restaurants, public venues, and hardly anybody even walked the streets of Jerusalem at that time. And uh, we were asked by friends and colleagues, you know, I think you should leave the country. I think that's the responsible thing to do. And we felt like, well, if there's any time that we need to be in Israel and to show our solidarity with what Israel goes through regularly, this is the time to be in Israel and, and go through that. And we have four sons. We had to think about our family. But to be honest, our sons, all four, say thank God that we stayed in Israel and they have a heart for the nation. My wife just missed getting blown up on a bus. She had a meeting one day and she was going to just take a bus to downtown Jerusalem with our son, Jonathan. The person she was to meet said, I've come early to the office. Could you come sooner? And she said, well, I'll come as soon as I can. I'll wait for the bus. Or if a taxi comes, I'll, I'll grab the taxi. Well, I was in our bedroom and I heard this huge explosion. I looked over the balcony and there was a double bus with smoke rising from it. I heard this explosion, as I said, and uh, 17 people we found out later died on that in that terrorist attack. My wife and son Jonathan got into a taxi instead of a bus and were spared. But uh, what a tragedy that those people died innocently. So we faced a number of cases like that. There was also the case of uh, the, the Gulf War, where we imagine that Saddam Hussein could have had chemical weapons on his Scud missiles, and uh, we all were given gas masks, and 11 times we went into our sealed rooms, in our, a sealed room in our apartment, with the thought that this next attack could be a chemical attack. Again, our kids dressed up with their masks on, and uh, one in a special kind of little bed for an infant, but you know, it was totally sealed with plastic and, and protected. But we got through that. And, and again, that really transformed our relationships with the Israeli people who saw that we were with them through good times and bad times. So those were challenges externally. I, I remember another challenge. We, we felt that we should go to Canada for five and a half months on a kind of sabbatical and also to, to share our uh, vision with, with our friends and partners. And uh, we got back to Jerusalem and things were not as we left them <laughs> in the congregation. Uh, we had some people that decided this is a good time for them to, to start their own thing. And, and we're into releasing people to start their own thing. We think that's a wonderful blessing, but we, we think we should do that in coordination. But we got back and they started something and, and pulled some people from the congregation and so on. We hoped for their success, frankly. Uh, unfortunately, it came to naught in the end. but. That was a challenge. How can this happen? Uh, you know, after you've sown your life so much into that congregation, those people, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we recovered from that, grew from there, but, but that was a challenge. I would also say one other challenge was I've had four heart attacks. The most recent one was a year ago. So you just wonder at any moment you could disappear. You pray that things go on and continue and grow and develop. I also felt seven years ago that I should hand off the baton to a younger leader. Just in principle, I felt that was important, but also because of my health issues, felt that it'd be very important to have somebody ready to go. Chad Holland is my successor. He's 21 years younger than me and is doing a terrific job and has really expanded the work greatly. But God has spared my life. Frankly, I feel very healthy. And every heart attack has been mild, they say. After my first heart attack, I had a, a long period of discouragement. I wouldn't call it clinical depression, but I felt uh, very discouraged. And I went off on a personal retreat in the Galilee 
and just got desperate with God, said, I need your power. I can't do this. I'm weak. I'm vulnerable. And I had a download of the Holy Spirit like I don't remember I ever had. I think I got the gift of faith out of that, uh, just a belief for the impossible. Shocked some of our staff. They hadn't seen me quite like that before. But it was out of that that I felt that the Lord had called us to build our own worship center. Of course, it developed into the prayer tower, as you said. Uh, and, and God did the impossible. To this day, I'm anticipating the impossible and that nothing is too difficult. That's been part of my journey. When we're able to persevere through what seems to be obstacles in the way, but we persevere through the Lord, we actually find ourselves in opportunities. I mean, I remember being there in 2000 during that intifada. I was at the All Nations Convocation, and I remember all the hotels being shut down, and we were staying in a hotel there in a kibbutz, and IDF was there, and they were protecting the hotel, bringing others from other hotels. And, and I remember the dynamic of having what I think was 1,500 delegates from various nations were there in Jerusalem that day. And it really brought to light a lot of scripture when you think about the dynamic of when Pentecost took place and what we read about 2,000 years ago. It, it just so happens in God's providence, he had already scheduled having people from all the known nations to be in Jerusalem. And in that context, the Holy Spirit moved. And so out of what seems like difficult situations turns into opportunities for God to do something greater. And the sense of the dynamic there, the, the car bombings, the explosions, to be in the middle of it brought to light what you have to live through every day and what our friends in Israel have to live through every day. It was a defining moment for me to continue to pray and to really have a passion to pray for the, the peace of Jerusalem but also for the peace in the Middle East. And, and because I know that that's the hotbed, that's really the whole world is connected to, and there is a consequence to what happens there spiritually and practically that affects all of us. I used to teach on the Jerusalem church model, and I wrote about it being the early church was set apart, sanctified, sacrificial in its willingness to serve, and then a sending church. But then I came across something you wrote on the Antioch model. And you said that culturally, first century Antioch was a melting pot of Greek, Roman, Jewish, Arab, and Persian influences. And no other city apart from Jerusalem appears as frequently in the book of Acts. Tell me a little bit about what you are sensing of the importance of the connection between the Jerusalem model church and the Antioch church, especially in the days in which we're living. You know, when I first got to Israel, of course, I was very focused on what did it look like in the book of Acts for Jerusalem? And of course, the model we see is after the day of Pentecost and the great revival and the 3,000 being saved, that they gathered in their homes. They were diligent in studying the teaching of the apostles and, and prayer and fellowship and uh, worship and breaking of bread in their homes. And, uh, and it says at the end, which is powerful, and, and the Lord added to their number daily all those who were being saved. So that's Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. I still believe that model is the best model. It is very much a community. It's not a theater or a concert. It's not one person on the stage and everybody else sitting in rows looking at the back of the person's head in front of you. It's very much a community, a fellowship. And, and the Lord did the adding they didn't even have any evangelism program as such. Because of their vital life in Jesus, they were attracting people to Jesus. And I still believe that very much. There was one missing element, though, in the Jerusalem model. 
And that's the fact that they did not go beyond Jerusalem for many years. And in fact, were very Jewish focused as they were Jewish believers in, in reaching their own people, but very little if any, reaching to the Gentiles. The outstanding story where some of that began to change was, you know, Peter having that revelation on the rooftop of the Simon the Tanner's house and gets this revelation of the sheep coming down with all of these unkosher animals and said, I'm not going to eat this. It's, it's not kosher. But the, the message was, well, actually, God has not made the non-Jews unkosher. Uh, God has also called them and, and they're part of his kingdom. And you need to reach the Gentiles. And so Peter did with household of Cornelius uh, and, and so on. But also Acts chapter 15, the debate over can Gentiles be in the kingdom of God without converting to Judaism, you know, getting circumcised and obeying the law of Moses. It took them a long time to realize that just not only to be in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, but to the uttermost parts of the earth. And this is where Antioch comes in. So Antioch is a mixed congregation, and many of them Gentiles. But Paul, the apostle, the Jew, the rabbi, Shaul, he and Barnabas, another Jew, are called to be missionaries, to be evangelists to the entire Gentile world. And Paul was proud to say, I'm a, an apostle to the Gentiles. He wasn't ashamed of that at all. He was proud in a good way. Antioch, together with the Jerusalem model, together are the are the ideal model of what we should be doing. We need to have a world vision. We can't be just insulated and focused on ourselves. And the church can easily get into that rut, right? We get comfortable doing what we're doing, but we don't have a heart for the lost or the heart for the hurting. But Antioch demonstrated that, and it was the sending church. And it was they were sent by the Holy Spirit, and words of prophecy spoken over Paul and Barnabas, and then sent to the nations. Well, I like what you said about that in your writing. You said that rather than seeing their vast diversity as a hindrance, they use their differences as a means of sending ministers to the nations. It is no mistake that during Saul's and Barnabas's first evangelistic outreach, the place they went to was Barnabas's home country, the island of Cyprus. And later, Paul would return to the region where he was brought up and ministered there. What you're saying is interesting connection between the Jerusalem model, the Antioch sending model. I know that there were churches many years ago. I remember a lot of the churches in Singapore were really feeling like God called them to be like an Antioch church to that region and to the nations of the world. Can you tie in a little bit more about the uniqueness of the Antioch church? We minister in our Jerusalem and go on to the uttermost parts, but how do we bring this connection to realizing the need for gathering in the presence of God in Jerusalem, even our spiritual Jerusalem, so to speak, and then to be sent forth from there like an Antioch church? We gather to be scattered and we need to recognize that six days of the week, we're out in our world that does not know Jesus. And that's our calling. And it doesn't matter whether you're a, a lawyer, a doctor, a gas attendant at a station, or whatever job you have, you're interacting with people who need the Lord. And we need that sense of urgency as well. Jesus said, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers into the field. And, and he also said, you know, don't wait four months for a harvest. The harvest is white now. It's ready. And that sense of urgency that there are lost people that are going to hell if they don't find Jesus. And we just need that sense of urgency back in our churches. Um, I don't 
have the formula for that, how to do that exactly. But as I do mention in that article you're quoting from, that they went to Barnabas's home. I think the Lord has equipped each and every one of us with a context, with a language, with a culture, with a, an understanding that isn't by accident. You know, the wonderful thing, you, you know, you're in America and I'm a Canadian, a very diverse culture now and immigration happening. And so why wouldn't we equip these people that have come to our nations as immigrants to go back to their own nations and to reach, it doesn't mean they have to move there, but maybe be sent there for a season and reach their own people. You know, we had this old model of, of missions where a white Anglo-Saxon spends five years trying to learn a language and, and can barely speak it and then try to go and reach people that are very different than themselves. I'm not saying that that's not possible. God can do anything. But look at all these people that already have the language, the culture, the understanding, and, and equip them to reach the nations. You know, in my own spiritual Jerusalem here in Houston, Texas, we had been praying for decades, and, and now we're the most diverse city in the United States of America. And so we have the nations here. And so we've always believed that if, if God would do something in the church, in Houston, in a corporate way, that it would literally impact nations of the world. And so we're mm -hmm. still believing for that. And I think for all of us, if we have the context of our local and global. I think that it gives us a perspective. I remember Leonard Ravenhill, who was like a spiritual grandfather to me, used to write me notes. And one of the notes he wrote said, my dearest brother, Doug, let others live on the raw edge or the cutting edge. You and I should live on the edge of eternity. And that's given me perspective, even when I go through discouragements and when I feel like, you know, I just say, is it worth it? And then I begin to process those kinds of statements, realizing that it really is in light of eternity. In fact, that's the name of the, the biography about his life in light of eternity. That for me, I realized that there's so many in the multitudes of the multitudes are on the valley of decision. They're on the edge of eternity. And how can I sit back on the beach of comfort and apathy when so many are still shipwrecked in the sea of despair? You had mentioned that you recognized you needed to transition and turn the reins over to others. That's not always easy. I have a lot of friends in Japan and other countries that are doing the same thing in marketplace as well as church world, trying to find ways of transitioning to the next generation. But it comes with hiccups. How are you able to move and how did your transitions go? And is it still ongoing and still maintain this area of spiritual fathering or apostolic covering? Because I really believe that emerging generations limit their successes of the future by how they handle the honor or dishonor of those who've laid the foundations for them. How are some of the transitions for you? And have there been hiccups along the way? And how do we keep our focus on what we want to see happen versus the challenge along the way when we're trying to pass the baton or raise up the next generation? Well, I've always had in my heart the idea of working myself out of a job. So even in my 20s, I was thinking in those terms. I've never held on too tightly to position or role. And I've always felt, well, once I hand that off to somebody else, God will give me something else to do. And I'm also a bit adventurous. I, I kind of like the unknown, and I've watched God do pretty amazing things in my life. So I just don't hug jealously to those roles. So that was easy for me relatively. I can't say it's always easy, but I think I was better equipped for that because it was already in my mindset in my early years of ministry. I think a key has been to find really good people. <laughs> and, you know, I've done my research. So the guy that took over for me at the congregation, Chad, you know, he was pastoring a Messianic congregation in Memphis. 
And I visited his congregation without him knowing. Somebody had suggested to me that he was he was the man for the job. And uh, so I started checking up on him, just watched carefully. And then, of course, got together with him on several occasions. It was important to get to know his wife and family. I think you need to do due diligence and not too quickly hand off the baton. One thing about Chad is he comes out of a context where fathers in the faith are viewed as assets, not liabilities. I think you may even know his father-in-law, Dan Juster, and that whole movement. They have great respect for founders and elders and father figures. And so Chad has followed through on that. He's very appreciative of my input. So I'm still on the pastoral team, and I preach probably every eight or nine weeks, and he, he seeks my input. That's worked out great. I know many stories where that hasn't worked great, but it, it has for us. And he's been in the job for seven years now, and I've taken that uh, servant role with him. There is some ways I can add some value just because I've been in Israel so long that I have those relationships of trust. Uh, in some ways, he's benefited from, from that and appreciates that. And then with Firm, I started together with a 21-year-old, Michael Mistretta. We uh, put the, the ministry together from day one. And in my mind, he would ultimately be the leader. And within five years, he was. And he was only 21 at the time. He had started his own business at age 15. First guy to put together digital advertising for Twitter. Did really well with that company. Then he was with Teen Mania for five years and learned good leadership skills there. And he was just a natural choice. He's doing such a phenomenal job. One thing I've said often when people ask me these kinds of questions, I really wait for others to look to me for input. I rarely volunteer my input. I just think it's important to acknowledge their leadership, to show others that you see them now in that primary role. I've said, if I see something potentially fatal, I'll speak up. And I've only done that once that I can remember. I guess I follow that same sort of model with me. People were saying, why don't you just tell me? I said, look, you need to hear from the Lord. And I'm here. If I see something I'm concerned about, I will talk with you about it. But I need you to move into the leadership God's called you to move into and not try to lead you. Otherwise, it becomes me, not you. I need you to hear from God for yourself. And there are defining moments and people in our lives that leave an indelible impact in us. And I have got to say that if you could address this for those that are listening and watching, especially from a Christian perspective, something about being in Jerusalem, being around the region, and you begin to see the Bible come alive. I know for me, every visit I've ever had there uh, has been very defining for me in really bringing to light certain things that I've always believed in, read, but something comes alive. When I've been in Obed-Edom's home, where the Ark of the Covenant would have rested, or when I was in Ein Karim, the birthplace of John the Baptist, things that come alive to me. But one of those other defining moments was just a few years ago when my wife and I were invited in to be invited by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for 10 or 12 days. And, and I remember during that trip, I asked if I could take a day because I heard of the archaeological dig that they had at the Tabernacle of Shiloh. I mean, I love the story of Hannah and out of her desperation that God did something humanly impossible, but God did something. And through that, she brought forth a new generation of righteous prophet and judge for the land. So I wanted to go and find where this archaeological dig was. And we went there and, and we saw the little flags and the different places where they found parts of the where the tabernacle would have been. And, and I tried to look for the spot that maybe Hannah would have been crying out to God in her desperation. 
those were defining moments for me. There's so many, and Pentecost one year being there in the upper room on Pentecost. And so there, there are things that come alive. How have you found when people come who've never visited uh, Jerusalem or visited Israel, that it, it does the same for them? How have you found that to be significant and the importance of those who can to come and visit and see the Bible come alive? Well, we've seen it over and over again. And uh, we've had an annual conference with firm called the Jerusalem Counter now. Five times we had to stop it during COVID, but we're doing it again next year in June. We've brought in young adults in particular and also pastors and leaders. Uh, we've seen total transformation of people's lives when they've seen the sites. And one of the things that we do that's a little unique, because FIRM is a, an association of local ministries in Israel, is that we introduce them to what God is doing in Israel today. So it's not just the ancient stones, but the living stones and what's happening in these ministries and how is God at work in Israel today. That's been transformative. We customize tours for churches, for associations of various kinds. Another new thing we're doing, and I'm, I'm excited about this, you may know the name uh, Dr. Craig Keener, great scholar, New Testament scholar at Asbury Seminary, written 30 books and one of his books with IVP sold over 500,000 copies, the New Testament backgrounds commentary. We're hosting Craig and his wife, Medine, this weekend, and they're going to be with us for two and a half weeks. He, he obviously wants to see all the sites, but we want to introduce him to what God is doing in the land today. Hopefully, he'll be impacted like so many of my friends are, and it will transform the way he even shares his teaching to his students at Asbury. We uh, will be bringing scholars next year, uh, several actually. We have a partner who wants to get those scholars there, and, and I cast that vision, and I'm excited about that uh, because I feel it's important for young people who are studying for ministry to get this experience right off the bat before they get too far along and, and get maybe a little fixed in some of their ideas. They need to see what God is doing today. You know, and if you're going to be teaching the Bible, uh, you need to, I think, at least once, uh, see the land of the Bible. A friend of ours, or actually a spiritual son, heads up Theater 7000, an inner city movement in uh, Philadelphia. But he travels back and forth with his family. In fact, they're back in Jerusalem right now. And he's the one that created the Actors Bible. And they do all the virtual. They actually take the actual footage of locations throughout the Bible and then they bring it to anybody in their home could do it with their children, with their family, to literally act out certain characters in the Bible with the backdrop of the actual locations. I'm sure he's come by and visited. I'm having to make sure he connects over there at Kings. The context of, you said living stones, because the context where we are right now, we talked offline a while ago that a couple of my former staff members are now working with the Jewish agency in Jerusalem and part of the Aliyah retention centers where people are coming in from all over, especially from the Ukraine. How have you seen the Ukrainian tragedy right now Then the response there in Israel of receiving so many that are being forced from their homes? How are you seeing some of the response of the church coming alongside to serve? Yeah, that's been uh, pretty amazing how people have responded in, in tremendous ways. Uh, We've seen, I think, about a quarter of a million dollars now come through Firm and King of Kings uh, to help Ukrainians. Uh, they, they get to Israel, but we also bought a van for uh, some ministries in Ukraine to be able to bring refugees uh, to the border of Poland and so on. And it just 
outpouring of love and care. We had a, uh, a dinner for 100 Ukrainian refugees recently at King of Kings just to bless them and, and welcome them to the land. And uh, there's just been a tremendous outpouring. And among believers who know the scriptures and know that God is bringing his people back to their homeland is, is all part of it as well. That's exciting to see God doing exactly what he said he would do. And unfortunately, this has not been the best circumstance in their return. But God is using this uh, to, to bring his people back to their land. For many years, I was the vice chairman of a ministry called Ebenezer, more popularly known as Operation Exodus. We helped over 150,000 Jews uh, to come to Israel, from primarily from Ukraine. We leased a ship that sailed from Odessa, Ukraine, to Haifa. And I was on six of those sailings you know, to bring his people back home. One of my uh, uh, members of our ministry, her family originally come from Odessa. So it's meant a lot to her. And just watching this tragedy lived out right now has been very painful. I know that in the midst of the most difficult of times, there is a redemptive side of we, the church. Uh, I'm thinking of, again, Luke 21, of all the crises that we can see take place. But verse 13 in Jesus' own words when he said, but this should be an occasion for your testimony. I just see this opportunity for the church to continue to let our light shine in such a way that others would see the Lord and glorify our Father in heaven. And mm -hmm. so thank you for the many years of, of laying foundations, faithfulness, and all that you've been doing to, to bring light to this. What are some of the things that the church in the West can be a part of helping to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, praying for y'all, praying for the things that you're involved in. How can we be praying for you? Uh, there's a particular burden my wife and I have for uh, the children of leaders in ministry. You know, a lot of the, the early pioneers, at least back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, you know, came to Israel. They were immigrants themselves, and it was a very high priority for them, for their children to integrate into Israeli society. And that became, in some ways, a top priority and they were quite successful at doing that in the process, many of them not going on with the Lord. A prayer burden for us is the children of leaders whom we would say are on detour. Uh, we don't call them prodigals, but uh, they're on detour. They're taking the long way around back to the Lord. And we're seeing results from these prayers, uh, concerted prayers, tremendous testimonies of young people that we have stayed in contact with, even though have drifted are now coming back. And so please pray for that. Pray for post-COVID uh, ministry. And, uh, you know, it's a whole new world and, and we're not unique in the world, I'm sure, in uh, where you are right now. A lot of pastors are wondering, well, how, where do we go from here? Are we going to have a hybrid church, you know, online, in person? How are we going to create community again? Um, and we, have, we face the very same thing in Israel today. And uh, some pastors, I'd say, are still quite in shock, um, PTSD from the COVID experience, and we, they just need, need help. And we're there to encourage them and do whatever we can to strengthen them. And many of them weren't, weren't ready for it at all. I mean, King of Kings, we, for 10 years, we were doing live streaming of our services. And some of these smaller congregations didn't have the budget or the expertise or the manpower to pull that off. And so we've tried to come alongside them and help them. So that's, that's a prayer burden. Continue to pray for the integration of the Ukrainians, especially the Jews that are coming, and how to uh, be a blessing and help to them and to see them 
find their Lord in the land of Israel. As you know, when people are in transition in major ways, that's when they're most open to hear a message and, and look for a new way of living. There is only one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Wayne, I just, in a moment, want you just to share if there's something you can encourage others to in the midst of, you mentioned a few times, PTSD, stress. There's such a burden so many are carrying and they're overwhelmed of heart. Give us a word that you feel like God has given you that we can hold on to, to get past these moments, this wilderness journey, and keep our eyes fixed on God's promises. You know, for me, I found that it's a lot of times God gives a promise but we also have to go through the process to take hold of the promise and possess the land. So what would the Lord give to you to share with all of us that would encourage them that they too can get past these temporary setbacks and to keep their eyes fixed on the Lord? Well, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. It's one of those promises of God that we don't always get excited about. But frankly, in my experience, it's been the hard times, the troubles where I've learned the most. I've learned how dependent I am on the Lord. Uh, it's a, it can be a very humbling experience to go through trials and tribulations, and you wonder, you know, what happened, and you realize how weak and vulnerable you are. And without the Lord, you surely will fail. But with the Lord, you can do the impossible. One of the things I was reflecting on earlier with you, Doug, was I, I was saying I've been fairly quick to hand off the baton to younger leaders and not to interfere or impose myself if whenever possible, most, most of the time it is possible. And, and one of the reasons I do that also is that they're actually going to learn more from their mistakes than from their successes. So let them make mistakes as long as they're not fatal. Uh, let them make mistakes because that's where you're going to learn. Again, you're going to learn to depend on God. You're going to learn not to do that again. And, and, and that's a good thing. So, you know, out of these trials and tribulations, even COVID itself, I think a lot of leaders today are rethinking church, rethinking the gospel. How are we going to, not that the gospel has changed, but the methodology of sharing the gospel has changed. And we now need to look at new ways. It was interesting that when Paul was called to reach uh, his Gentile world, he used the Roman highway system. He came at the right time. Jesus came at the right time where, where the gospel could spread quickly because of what the Romans had done. Well, the Romans were not very kind. They were pretty cruel. And yet they built a great road system, which enabled the gospel to go forth in a quicker and more efficient way. And here we have a new highway system, the internet, social media, uh, virtual reality, all kinds of technologies now that we could, we could curse these things because they, they, they can be used for evil. But if we don't utilize those things, the devil will, will have the monopoly in those systems. We've got to redeem them and use them uh, to bring the gospel effectively to the world. And I would just say, hey, these troubles, these tribulations... They're the mother of invention. Uh, they are the opportunity for us to rethink church and rethink how we're going to gather and how we're going to scatter. And so to look at these things, not as traumatic uh, in the sense of traumatic in the way that we're going to always have to live with the trauma, but that we're going to conquer it. And when we conquer it, we're going to look back and say, thank God for those. Thank God for COVID. I mean, not because he didn't cause it, but thank God that he that he can even use a tragedy like this to help us to re-engineer ourselves and 
and get back to the basics and, and yet use uh, modern technologies to make it work. I could go on and ask you so many more questions because it's intriguing. And of course, the years of experience that I would love to glean from you and, and try to, at least from a distance, since I live in Houston. I just thank you so much today, Wayne, for being with us, for taking the time. I know the time uh, difference in Israel is significant. And thank God that uh, you're in a better time zone today. Uh, but we pray for your great, that God's favor and grace continue upon you and all the ministries and individuals that you've raised up and discipled. Something that the Consul General of Poland and I were together in the last couple of weeks and uh, was sharing with me of the two and a half million evacuees or refugees out of Ukraine through, that came through Poland, that they're doing the best they can not to have large refugee camps, but actually imbibe people in transition into their own homes. And I thought, wow, here it is in Poland that are receiving uh, Ukrainians into their homes as they're transitioning out and moving on to, to some doing Aliyah to Israel, to others going on to other places. But, uh, for a whole nation, that really touched my heart that that I believe touches the heart of God. By the way, my my eldest son, Jamie, is married to a girl from Warsaw. And uh, so we get the inside scoop on a lot of stuff. And I'm really, I have to honor uh, the Polish people at a time like this. It's been tremendous. Ken, would you take a moment just to pray for all of us and pray for Wayne and the ongoing work that they're doing there? Absolutely. Be my honor. Uh, thank you, Wayne, uh, for I have observed this man's track record for all these years. We've been colleagues in the kingdom. He and Anne, we go a long way back. Just, I want to bless you for your faithfulness in ministry, Wayne, and be an example to the rest of us. We, we honor you. Uh, we do that. And uh, we honor you today. And so let's pray. And Father, I thank you for the Hills and family. I thank you for generational righteousness through this family line, for his father, his brother, and himself. And on the gamble side of his family as well, as they have been heralds of your message for so many years. And today we bless Wayne and we bless the King of Kings work. We thank you for that witness that they have been in the center of Jerusalem. I remember the birthing. I remember the miracle of the birthing. And to hear the testimony today that Wayne shares with us, our hearts are filled with praise and thanksgiving and adoration. And really, you opened up a door that no man could open. You did that. You shut doors that no man can open. And so, Father, we, we worship and serve a God of open doors. And I thank you that the Hills and family have been willing to walk through those open doors. We bless their ministry in the land. We bless their ministry in, through the prayer tower and the role of intercession uh, throughout the Middle East. We thank you for the voice of hope out of Lebanon. We thank you for all the good things that have happened through this ministry. I pray for every one of us that are here listening today that this time would be a time of information, motivation, inspiration, collective burden for the center of the world. We pray today for the peace of Jerusalem. We can never forget to do that. The only city in the world that we are directed to pray for. So today, we as a collective, we pray for the peace, the Prince of Peace of Jerusalem, Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach. We bless you today, Father God. And we speak your blessing over every ministry that is gathered here. Thank you for Doug. 
Thank you for a man that's lived on the edge of eternity as his mentor shared with him, but on the cutting edge of ministry. I pray that you meet every need, Father, for this ministry, financially, emotionally, spiritually. The spirit of the volunteer will grow stronger in this season. And we say thank you that we can come before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find grace to help in this time of need. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.